Romans chapter 11, Romans the 11th chapter. As you're turning there, let me remind you of where we are in this study. Paul is taking this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11 and describing a question that would have arisen in the minds of the Gentile and Jewish believers who had heard him write and preach up through eight chapters of this epistle. Namely, well, if God is the God of the Old Testament and Jesus is the incarnation of the God of the Old Testament, what happened to the Old Testament? What happened to the Jews? What do we do with those first 39 books? What do we do with all those promises? So we've titled this whole study of Romans 19 and 11, Israel and the Credibility of God, because really what's at stake here is not so much Israel and their past and present and future as it is God and his character and his credibility. We began looking last week at this illustration that uh, Paul starts unpacking, which is of, of, a, of a trunk. It's an olive tree, this healthy olive tree that has branches grafted into the trunk, into the, the roots, as it's called. And so this is an illustration of Gentiles being grafted into the purpose and the promise and the covenant of God. He made a promise to save uh, and redeem a group of people, and he also promised that it wouldn't just be the Jews, and yet they weren't so much faithful to evangelize in their own realm and in their own way, which left a lot of questions unanswered. So we pick up Paul in the middle of describing this grafting illustration. Verse 23, let me read that for us. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature into a, a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation. Namely, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved." Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In 1948, Israel became a recognized state by the United Nations. And the rebirth of Israel as a nation is fascinating reading. It is uh, page-turning drama as they were st stacked up against all the Arab nations around them, won a fierce battle. The good guys won in this one. And England, who was overseeing Israel at the time, granted their desire to let them become their own state. Now, it is true that America has no better no more important and no politically more aligned friend in the Middle East than Israel. But a question that many have asked over and over and over since that time, before that time, and because of that time, 
is this. Does the modern state of Israel have a place in biblical prophecy? I grew up in a revivalistic church where we would have revivals once a year, sometimes twice a year if the pastor thought we needed it. And uh, we would have men come in and he would point to 1948 and say, see, God keeps his promises. Israel is a nation, therefore Jesus may come back tomorrow. Which was always a problem to me. What if, what if could Jesus not come back in 1946 or 1940? When Paul said be ready for his coming, returning, was, was he confused? I remember as a junior higher having some of those questions. Let me read you what one writer says. Quote, this momentous occasion had been recorded by the pen of the prophet Isaiah. A nation shall be born in a day, says Isaiah 66, 8. He goes on to say, it was the greatest moment in prophetic history of the 20th century. It was living evidence for all men to see that the God of Israel was alive and well, end quote. Is that true? Was 1948 in a reconstitution of Israel as a state that had laid dormant for two millennia really the proof that God had turned back to his promises to Israel? Well, today, you might be interested to know, uh, Israel is governed by a secular, non-religious democracy. The government of modern Israel makes no allegiance to God, no allegiance to Scripture. In 1948, when Israel's leaders wrote the Declaration of Statehood, God was not mentioned at all in the Declaration until at the very end, the last hour, I think it was the last day, with Ben-Gurion um, having a debate and an argument with his counselors, some wanted the name of God to be mentioned in their statehood declaration. Ben-Gurion argued no, but he did allow the word rock to be included. This is the only place in their declaration that has anything to do with God. Let me read it to you. It's not even in the declaration. It's where they signed their names. Placing our trust in the rock of Israel. That's all you get. We affix our signatures to this proclamation at the session of the Provisional Council of State on the soil of the homeland in the city of Tel Aviv on the Sabbath Eve, the fifth day of Yar 5708, 14th May 1948. End quote. So here's the question to consider. If the reconstitution of Israel was a significant part of biblical prophecy, wouldn't you expect that those who received that prophecy fulfillment might want to give God some credit? Now make no mistake, the gathering of Israel back in the land of God's promise to Abraham will take place. But it didn't happen in 1948. Jeremiah 32, 37 says this, Behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. Does that sound like the current state of Israel? It may be the most dangerous country in which to live today. Every uh, bomb in the Middle East has its aim on Israel. Ezekiel 36, 30, 24 says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Meaning, not some, but all the Jews would be regathered into Israel. My, my, my neighborhood is full of 
Jewish friends. Did this all really happen back in 1948 as some conjecture? Or as others conjecture, is it not going to happen at all? Our all-millennials friends say, well, really, when you break it down, the church is Israel. And so those promises morphed and changed and, 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 and diluted when they came to us. And it does, land doesn't really mean land. And da, son of David doesn't really mean in Jerusalem. And everything is spiritualized. Well, ter- take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 37 for a moment. And let me just tell you as you're turning there, uh, based on first hour, this is going to be a two-parter. I didn't even come close to finishing this morning. Ezekiel chapter 37. We looked at this a few weeks ago, and if you'll remember, I told you we're going to come back to Ezekiel 37 because we didn't read all of it. This is the great vision, the great prophecy of the dry bones, the valley of dry bones Here's the question we need to ask as we go through this. Has this happened at any point in history? Now, some would say, well, it happened at least, this is a a Babylonian prophecy, they would say, but it happened in some measure after the northern tribes were taken away uh, to uh, Syria and they came back and reconstituted themselves. Others would say, no, this is a prophecy about returning after the Babylonian captivity where Daniel was and the reconstitution of Israel at that time. Others would say, no, this is Herod's reclamation, which uh, happened um, right around the time of Christ. The temple was rebuilt and the modifications were made. It was remodeled and that's what it's talking about. But the majority of evangelicals in the last few years, last few decades have said, no, that actually happened in 1948. Let's ask if any of those possible time periods qualify as to what Ezekiel said would happen. Ezekiel 37 verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. I just, this is intended to draw out your imagination. He sits in this valley. He sees skeletons everywhere. They weren't even skeletons laid head to toe. We'll find that out in a minute. Just bones everywhere. He caused me to walk among them, pass among them round about, And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. means they had been dead a long time. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? When you're ever asked a question by God, be careful of your answer. Ezekiel is genius here. Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, Oh, Lord, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them. This had to shock him. He had been prophesying for decades to people. And now he's prophesying to dead bones, dry bones. Say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter in you and that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham and Moses. So, I prophesied as I was commanded. I love that. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling 
and bones came together, bone to its bone. That meant all of them were unarranged and they came back arranged in the right order. And I looked and behold, sinews, muscle, nerves, tissue were on them. Flesh, skin, groove covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded. And the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, if you're like me, you're going to say, what in the world is this talking about? As Ezekiel wanted to know too, so God supplies him an explanation. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Let's make sure we didn't make a mistake. These bones are the, what word? Whole, what word? Whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. That will be vivid imagery here in a moment in Romans 11. Therefore prophesy to them and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves. I will cause you to come up out of your graves. My people, my people, you'll come up out of your graves. From every nation is the imagery that he'll paint in a moment. I will bring you into the land of Israel. So let's just test 1948 for a second. The whole of the nation will be brought at this time in the land of Israel. Does anyone know any Jews living anywhere outside of Israel? This hasn't happened yet, right? Then you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and, will come to, and you will come to life. I will place you on your own land, a very specific land promise. Then, after that, you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. If they knew that the Lord God had done it and spoken it in 1948, why did they argue whether, whether they should put the name of God in their constitution? Verse 15. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it. For Judah, for the sons of Israel and his companions, then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, it's kind of complicated. Remember, Joseph didn't get a tribe, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, did, but that's for another time. And all the house of Israel. This is the northern and southern tribes of northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Then join them for yourself to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. When the, son, the, the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel and his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will become one in my hand. This is the reunification of the northern and southern tribes. The sticks on which you 
uh, right will be in your hand before your eye, their eyes. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Verse 23. And they will no longer defile themselves with idols, their idols, or with detestable things, or with any, you see that, any, any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Has that happened in any point in the history of the nation of Israel? Just read what happened when they came back to the land after Assyria or after Babylon. Did they have this revival of God being their God and them removing idolatry from their land? Quite the opposite. No longer any idolatry or detestable things or sinful proclivities. I've been to Israel. That's not the case now. More than all that, has this happened yet? My servant David will be king over them. Now, is this talking about literally David? David's been dead a long time. No, it's the throne of David. The first thing you read about Jesus Christ in the New Testament is he is the son of David. Matthew chapter 1. My servant David will be king over all of them. They will have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances. They will keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. They will live on it. Are you getting the idea that this land is an important promise to God? They and their sons and their sons. And how long will this land promise be? Forever, it says. Forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. The Lord Jesus will come and rule and reign from the, the center throne of the universe in the new city called Jerusalem. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. I have been to the Temple Mount. There is no sanctuary on the Temple Mount. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Has that been the message of 1948? When my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We have seen the prophecy after prophecy that the temple will be rebuilt. That chapter has not happened any time in history. And so we have to ask a question. If God made a promise that it would, and he did, if God never lies and he doesn't, what do we do with this? It's going to happen in the future. 
So all comes back to the credibility of God. Either that God will fulfill this promise. And this is just Ezekiel 37. We could go to Jeremiah 31, 32. We could go to Zechariah 12, 13, 14. I'm going to Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. If he hasn't done it yet, and he always does what he says, there's only one conclusion to be left with, right? He's going to do it in the future. It's his credibility that's at stake. That's the issue, now back to Romans 11, that comes to fruit in the passage before us. Now, a little review. Since uh, uh, Romans 2, we've been looking at and studying that the Jews had a significant problem with dealing with Yahweh, with dealing with God. They had not said he is our God and we are his people and we're a a light to the nations. Some had. There were some very um, uh, sincere, God-fearing Jews. I think of Simeon who held Jesus that first time. Anna. But by and large, most of the nation, even before Christ, had not followed Yahweh, their God. So, Romans 2, Paul told us, Your problem is you have the law, you possess the law, you have the statutes, you have the ceremonies, you have the temple, but verse 13, Romans 2, you're hearers of the law, but you're not doers. It's a superstition to you. It's something that you think you're special to God about because you're a possessor of the Torah, of the covenant, of the scrolls, rather than fulfilling it. And if you want to really know the crux of the issue that Paul's addressing with with the error of the Jews. Remember, Paul is a Jew criticizing them. He's not a Gentile criticizing them. Romans 10, turn back there for a second, a couple pages. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Yesterday I was mowing my grass, and it was a Saturday morning, and we live in a neighborhood that's by a Jewish synagogue, and every Saturday morning there are uh, uh, Jewish neighbors who, all in black, who are walking because that's what they think they need to do to the synagogue. And they always have a curious look at me. And I know a little Hebrew, so I'll, Boker Tov, I saw them. They're always a little bit, they don't know exactly what to do with this guy in, in shorts mowing his grass speaking Hebrew to them. Um, <laughs> but they always look at me, it's like, you know a little Hebrew... You ought to know, you ought not be doing what you're doing right now. This is a Sabbath. You're working bad, 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 bad. They just don't know what to do. They have a zeal for God. They think that walking to the synagogue in all black, especially when it's hot, especially when it's cold, earns their favor. God winks at them with approval. They have a zeal for God. He says, and not in accord with knowledge. Knowledge of what? Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness. They didn't know about God's righteousness, and they sought to establish their own. There's the crux of the whole issue. If you want to know the Jewish problem throughout history, and frankly, it's ours in our own intuitive way, that's the problem of Catholicism. That's the problem of Judaism. That's the problem of every self-works-based religion. You don't understand the righteousness of God. Now read chapters 1 through 8. What is the righteousness of God? He goes on to tell us. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. There it is. They didn't believe Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. That's the problem. So 
The Apostle John can say clearly in John 1, 11, Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not, what? Receive him. However, Romans 11 runs to the rescue in our theology that would take and push Israel and the Jews off a cliff. No matter how far Israel has strayed from their God, the illustration before us informs us that the roots or the trunk of the olive tree stands in good health and ready to receive the grafting in of Jewish believers in the gospel. Now, listen, the majority of Jews have refused to recognize Jesus as their Messiah since since Jesus was alive, since he died, since he rose from the grave. But this is a temporary condition that Paul will tell us in a few verses will come to an end. Here's the point. Just as unbelief leads people to be cut off, belief, Jew or Gentile, will mean being grafted into becoming a part of the people of God. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you would say, ooh, this, this, is, this, is, this doesn't make tons of sense. Paul knew that. So he calls this whole thing, it's a mystery. It's a mysterion, he's going to call it in, in our next verse. He says, there were things in the Old Testament that were true but not complete until the New Testament. And he's going to fill in the gaps of how Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Christ and in a future for a saved spiritual Israel. So let's kind of dissect this passage by looking at three insights into the mystery of Israel's salvation. Paul calls it a mystery. Three insights, three peaks into this mystery of Israel's salvation. First insight is in verses 23 and 24. The means, the means of Israel's salvation. Namely, it's faith in the gospel. The means of Israel's salvation is the same means as your and my salvation. Faith in the gospel. Now, the first thing you have to do here when you're looking at these verses is go back to um, probably 10th grade grammar. Um, if, you haven't, if you're in the 9th grade, know that it's coming. Uh, where we studied... Subjects and verbs and predicates and predicate adjectives and predicate nominatives and subordinate clauses and, and all that grammatical function. The first thing you always look for in a sentence is the subject, right? Who's, what's the subject? Well, there's a they and there's a you. The they here in verse 23 is a different group than the you in verse 24. The they in verse 23 are Jews, um, specifically Jews who had rejected the Messiah up to this point. And the you in verse 24 were Gentile believers who he's addressing at the church there in Italy. Let's break it down then. Who are the they? Well, read the sentence without the parenthetical uh, phrase, uh, uh, without the commas for just a second. And they also will be grafted in. Let's... let's Break it down further. The Jews also will be grafted in just like the Gentiles were grafted into the Jewish covenant of the Messiah coming to save people from sin. You say, well, hang on. He used this illustration so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. Now he's saying that the Jews can be regrafted in? Yes. 
They are the ones who are characterized. Now look at the inside the, inside the commas. If they do not continue in their unbelief, that is the state of Israel today without the gospel. They are continuing in their unbelief and are under the curse of God that has scattered them all the way around the world and disallowed them to possess their own land. Look at the parenthetical phrase here in verse 23. They continue in disbelief. Look back at verse 24. Quite right. You were broken off for their unbelief. They were broken off for their unbelief. The Jews were broken off from the covenant of God. That's the the olive tree. It's the covenant of God, the promise of God, which would be fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. They were cut off because of their unbelief. Not all Jews. Remember how this chapter started? Paul's a Jew. And he was converted. These are Jews, part of Israel, who do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah, which is the majority of Jews who've lived throughout the centuries since he was on the planet. More importantly, though, notice that God is the master grafter. He is able to take believing Jews and put them back into the trunk, back into the covenant. Look into verse 24 for some more explanation. Who is the you here? Gentile believers who were, or they used to be, separated from the gospel. They were apart from this olive tree. They were part of a wild, fruitless olive tree. And God did the unthinkable. And this is, he tells us in this verse, God did something contrary to nature, contrary to intuition. No one would do this. What they would do is if, a, if an olive tree wasn't um, uh, producing fruit, producing olives, they would cut off the branches that weren't and they would take a good branch and put it, because it was still alive, they would put it on this, this old fruitless trunk and it would feed these branches which were already bearing fruit. They cut them off a healthy tree and they would keep bearing fruit. That's not the illustration that Paul gives. He gives just the opposite. He says, you know what God did? He went to a branch that was bearing no fruit, cut it off, and put that branch into a good olive trunk, and it began to bear fruit. That's why he says, this is contrary to nature. But imagine this. How much more natural it is that a branch that is original to the trunk that's cut off an unbelieving Jew and grafted back in would take to that root. Now, you can't press the illustration too much. Now, people say, well, if it was cut off, it would die. How long is this? That's not what he's saying. He's talking about them existing right next to each other. Let him be an illustrator. He says, God will graft Jewish believers back into the messianic hope of the covenant. It's amazing. Critical part of this illustration to notice is the means of grafting and rejecting. Faith and unbelief. Do you see it there? Faith is important. Unbelief. Faith is what you come to. Unbelief is what keeps you cut off from the covenant of God. Just another place to pause and say, do you know Jesus is Savior. Do you know the Savior? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Are you in the position of being cut off? Are you not attached to him for your spiritual vitality and life? 
the means of salvation for Israel is the same as for us, faith in the gospel. Number two, the extent of Israel's salvation. The extent of Israel's salvation. Namely, the entirety of the nation. The entirety of the nation. This is verses 25 through 26a. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Stop right there. We've talked for a few weeks about how this could be really pedantic study for us. I mean, I'm having trouble with my, my uh, this, my that, and I'm coming to church and we're studying ancient, present, and future Israel. Well, Paul says, no, no, this is way more important than you might think at first glance. Don't be uninformed about this mystery. You better understand this. This is the credibility of God that is at stake. Otherwise, look at the little um, uh, parentheses there. Otherwise, you'll become wise in your own estimation. You'll become an arrogant Christian, not caring about Jews and not caring about evangelism. You'll think you're it, he says to us. You will think of the church only in Gentile terms and not as being grafted in to the covenant that God made to Israel. Then he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about what, Paul? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Come in. This hardening will extend until the fullness of the Gentiles. What's the hardening? God has, this is, this is just, you have to take it at face value. God has hardened the heart of the majority of Jewish people to the gospel itself. Why? Because they rejected him when he was here in the flesh. Remember the illustration of the olive tree? He cursed the tree and it withered and he said, this is the nation? Does that mean that no Jew can be saved? Oh, no, no. He says there are elect Jews we should be finding by virtue of evangelism. But God is not flying a modern Israel flag in heaven. They have spiritual blindness. It began when they rejected Jesus as Messiah. It will continue until this little phrase, until the, the number of Gentiles have been saved, their f- fullness. What is that? If you go back to chapter 8, verse 28 to 32, and you look in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, you'll know that this is until the elect Gentiles get converted. That's what it is. Until every elect Gentile that God has chosen before the foundation of the world believes. And when that last one believes, the next stage of his enactment on the history of this planet will come to fruition. He's saying that the failure of the natural Jews to receive the Messiah would not derail God's purpose to have a spiritual olive tree full of productive branches, even if it included Gentiles. Now, think about this. Although modern Israel was established and wasn't foretold in the Bible, there is an establishment of a Jewish national group of, of uh, believing Jews that will happen one day in the future. All Israel shall be saved. Look at there in verse 26. All Israel shall be saved. What does that mean? We're going to come back to it more next week, but right now, just know it doesn't mean that every Jew who has ever lived will be converted. You don't get another chance after you've died. 
It's appointed a man once to die, then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 says. He is speaking to the, of the Jews living when the great deliverer, in the next verse, comes. That's what he's talking about. If you want to study this on your own, Zechariah 12 and 13, even up to, up into, um, up to the end of 13, rather, is really helpful to understand the details of this. Let me just say this. When all the evidence is weighed, I believe that there are way too many details in the Old Testament prophets and prophecies of a national restoration for Israel for us to spiritualize them and apply them to the church today. It just doesn't work. Which leads us, and I'm just going to tease you with this and we'll come back and do this next week, okay? Number three, the nature of Israel's salvation. You know when Israel will be saved? When they believe the gospel. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is not talking about a national constitution. This is talking about salvation from sin. It's a quotation from Isaiah 59, verse 20. Read it from 59 all the way into 60. This great vision of this prophecy of the restored nation of Israel. All who will be God's people. All who will be saved. All who will be worshipers. All idolatry gone. Everyone, one of God's children at that point. Then he just summarizes it. Still in Isaiah 59. This is my promise with them, my covenant. When I will take away their sins. You say, when will that happen? I remember the first time I read the verse I'm about to read you. I physically, literally got chills on my arm because I'd heard that verse and thought it was in the New Testament. Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, listen, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will one day look and say, the one we pierced, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the Messiah we longed for. When will this happen? How will this happen? We're going to do that next week. But let me give you a hint. Read Revelation chapter 7. And you'll find out exactly how it's going to play out.